0: Lesson 8 Part 1 of Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Elements of Geology by William Rushenberger. Lesson 8 Part 1 explanation of various phenomena consequences of central heat first effect of cooling warm springs deposits referable to sediment fresh water deposits fossils of marine deposits fossils of carbonaceous deposits having established the fact of a central heat Capable of keeping everything in a state of fusion at a short distance beneath the surface we inhabit, having shown the actual effects of earthquakes and of volcanic action, having pointed out those which waters produce, both by denudation or degradation, and the formation of new deposits, it is natural to attempt, by reference to these effects, the explanation of all geological phenomena which have occurred on the surface of the globe from the first moment of its existence. The causes now in action are the same as those which have acted through all time, but doubtlessly they were more energetic at certain epochs than present observation shows. Consequences of Central Heat The complete fluidity of the globe gave rise to its ellipsoidal form. The heat so long preserved and still existing beneath the cooled pellicle or crust has produced, and is now producing, a great number of phenomena. The temperature of the surface is nearly stationary and has not varied since the period of records and will not probably change. But before reaching this state, which probably required thousands of years, the surface of the earth must have passed through every degree of heat, from the state of fusion in which the centre still is, to its present degree of cold. Consequently, there was a time when the temperature of the earth was such as to do away with differences of climate, or an atmosphere of vapour, which, by overcoming radiation, diminished the rigour of winter. Then vegetation, and life generally, could be equally maintained in all latitudes, as in a hothouse. From this it follows that plants and animals, now found only between the tropics, could then live anywhere, even under the poles, which were not then encumbered in ice. It is therefore not astonishing that we should find the remains of these various creatures buried nearly on the spot where they lived, in countries which are now the coldest in the world, and in which it would be impossible for them to live at the present time. There is, in England, on the island of Portland, and at several places on the continent intercalated in other deposits a bed of black matter called dirt bed and small argillaceous beds in which among a great many vegetable remains bedded and scattered are various plants in their place of growth the roots of which extend into the fissures of the calcareous soil beneath Therefore, there must have been a vegetable soil on which all the plants now buried in the earth then grew. But all the species found in this bed belong to the genera such as cycas and zamia, which now live only in the tropics, and the remains of animals also belong to the same zone. Consequently, the mean temperature at the time of this formation was very different from what it is now in England. Most of the coal deposits of Europe lead to a similar conclusion. Entire trees with their roots, many of them still erect, are found as in the mine of Triul, near St. Etienne, in the mines of Anzin, north, in England, in Scotland, etc., which seems to indicate, as in peat bogs, plants that grew very near the places where they are now found. It is evident from the perfect preservation of the most delicate parts of plants, the manner in which the leaves are extended on schists, that these remains could not have been carried far. All the remains of plants found in these deposits belong to the Aquisitate sea, lofty ferns, to the Lycopodia sea, etc., and cannot be compared with those now existing in the tropics. Consequently, the climate of Europe must have been then very different from what it is at present. We find in the latitudes of Europe certain beds containing the remains of intertropical plants, but we also find above them considerable deposits in which are dicotyledonous donus plants of the present time. The formation of the last deposits, then, must have taken place long after the first, and it is probable that between the epochs a period of time elapsed sufficient for cooling the surface of our planet. Medripals of reefs, which now do not exist beyond the tropics, then evidently extended to the polar circle. In fact, the limestones of different periods contain a great number and frequently show that reefs existed comparable to those of our days. Facts show that the limits of these banks of zoophytes have retrograded from the period of the deposit of the oldest limestones to that of the chalk, after which they suddenly retired to their present limits. In other words, the climate of Europe has grown successively colder. First effect of cooling The idea of complete fusion and of cooling which the observation of the phenomena forcibly leads us to admit, also leads us to conceive what must have taken place on the first consolidation of the globe's surface. The first solid pellicle formed underwent from cooling more or less contraction, and on this account must have broken in all directions, from the action of the melted matter it covered swimming in pieces on its surface, and uniting anew, more or less irregularly, to be broken again. But assuming greater consistence, and pressing more and more on the liquid part, this must have gushed up through the rents, then more rare, and formed above the crust, projecting ridges of more or less extent, which increased in height in proportion as the resistance of the crust became greater, and caused stronger and stronger reaction. Hence the first rugosities, the first ridges formed on the surface of the globe, which possibly afforded the first hold for the action of water, the precipitation of which took place, without doubt, long before the temperature of the terrestrial crust had descended to two hundred and twelve degrees of fahrenheit's thermometer in consequence of the pressure exerted by the vapour then diffused in the air from that moment waves produced debris and arenaceous matters and sediments began to form probably the water at a high temperature charged with the principles disengaged from the solidified masses, like lava of the present time, attacked the stony matters, disintegrated and dissolved them, and subsequently formed chemical deposits or consolidated the debris. In fact, we find deposits formed of fragments of rolled flints and of sands in the most ancient layers yet examined, and before meeting with organic remains. All the solid layers formed beneath the first pellicle, like it, being subjected to the law of contraction from cooling, must have been filled with cracks in all directions. Therefore, the whole terrestrial crust thus formed could not have been as solid as might be at first imagined. It could not resist, so successfully as might be thought, the internal actions, which, meeting no obstacle in the sedimentary deposits subsequently formed, must have dislocated them in all ways. In fact, there is no deposit on the surface of the globe, either sedimentary or crystalline, which is not found to be cracked in all directions. Even on the upper surface, most rocks are broken in small fragments to a considerable depth. While the crust of the earth was gradually cooling, things must have passed nearly as we have stated, but— after the temperature had become stationary, as it is now, it could not have been the same. The superficial pellicle does not contract, because it does not grow sensibly cooler. Nevertheless, the interior mass is still cooling more and more, although with extreme slowness, and consequently diminishing in volume and according to Fourier, a decrease of internal heat of not more than 1 degree and 30 yards would require 30,000 years. Now, the fluid part tending to drag with it, that which covers it, and which becomes successively too large, this must contract on itself, and ridge the surface by dislocations through its whole thickness. This may take place tranquilly for some time, but at certain moments the effect cannot fail to take place quickly, and hence the sudden catastrophes experienced on the Earth's surface. All observations, in accordance with geometrical considerations, show that these ridges and these dislocations are formed according to the great circle of the sphere and extend over the half of its circumference. Warm Springs The different degrees of temperature of warm springs are referable to the central heat, which is communicated through fissures of greater or less profundity the waters come to the surface with the temperature of the point whence they started, and, it is known, that at the depth of about 3,280 yards, they boil. Now it may be readily conceived how, during earthquakes, new hot springs may appear in a country, and how those that existed there may be lost. In the first instance all that is required is a fissure to establish a communication between the surface and a proper depth, and, for the second, that the existing communication should be interrupted. We may easily conceive, also, that before the earth had reached its present degree of cooling, hot springs must have been infinitely more numerous than they are at present when, instead of one-thirtieth of a degree centigrade per yard, the temperature increased one-third of a degree, that is, ten times more rapidly than at present, and when water boiled at a depth of 325 yards, it is clear there must have been a great many springs at a temperature of 212 degrees Fahrenheit, or of boiling water, and that fumaroles, now rare, were then common. Consequently, the condition of the atmosphere was then very different from what it is now. Thick fogs must have spread over the surface of the earth in the absence of the sun, and hence Radiation towards the celestial space, at present an important cause of refrigeration, must then have been nothing. Winter was consequently less rigorous, and this explains too how so many plants and animals, which cannot now exist in northern climates, could then live in them as between the tropics, and precisely as southern plants now live, on northern coasts and islands which are constantly shrouded in thick fogs. The whole earth, tempered by these abundant vapours, could then support the same organic creatures. Here we have reason why mineral beds of a determined age differ less in the organic remains they contain wherever found than existing creatures of different zones. Deposits referable to sediment. Rolled flints, sand and mud are formed by the action of running water and of waves, and, being transported by these waters, they accumulate in lakes, in seas, at the mouths of rivers and on coasts whenever we find these kinds of matter accumulated in more or less considerable deposits in the interior of countries, we have a right to conclude that there existed somewhere far or near high mountains from which these matters were detached, watercourses which carried them, undulating waters which heaped them upon their shores, and often lakes and seas that received them. By the greater or less abundance and size of the rolled flints, we can judge of the mass and force of the waters that transported them, and their nature and various course or track ought to lead to the point of their origin, if circumstances have not destroyed the traces left by currents in their course as in the present day, we see deposits of shells formed in lakes and seas. We infer that the numerous beds of the same kind we find at all heights, even on the summits of the loftiest mountains, were necessarily formed under water. The nature of the organic remains enables us to determine whether they were deposited under fresh Or salt water on coasts or in depths of the sea. Their mixture, their alternation, indicate mouths of rivers, alternations of salt and fresh water, etc. Deposits from fresh water. These deposits are easily recognised from the organic remains they contain, being comparable to different genera sometimes even to different species of animals now living in our lakes and rivers. There are especially remains, impressions or moulds of shells, like those of the genus Limnia, Planorbis, Paludina, Melania, and of land shells of the genus Helix. These are all univalve, unilocular shells. The bivalve shells of freshwater deposits, more rare than the preceding, are like mussels, unio, anodonta, cyclus, and sirena. The entire absence of every species of Polyparia and Echinidae is an important characteristic of freshwater deposits, which are very common in different parts of the world. Marine deposits. These are distinguished by the analogy of the organic remains they contain to the debris of different animals now living in the seas. Polyparia, more or less analogous to those which form coral reefs, are highly characteristic. Enchronites, or the remains of their joints, the echiniodi. Not one of these organic bodies is found in fresh water. Among the marine univalves there are some which are more or less analogous to those of fresh water previously mentioned, although they are thicker and more generally covered with tubercles. But, setting aside those on which at first sight there might be some doubt, there are many others which are sufficiently characteristic. These are shells whose aperture is terminated by a canal of greater or less length, and belong either to the genus Cerithium, of which a small number of species lives in fresh water, or to the genera, murex, voluta, etc. They are all marine, and abound in calcareous deposits. Marine bivalve shells generally differ very much from those found in fresh water. Some resemble oysters, and others are almost entirely like them. A great many are furnished with ribs, or striae, or rugosities, and possess, in a word, many characteristics entirely different from those found in the genera we have just mentioned. Chambered shells are found only in seas, such as the nautilus, more or less like numerous species of ammonites, no analogue of which is now living, but with which certain terrestrial strata are filled. These deposits are generally formed very slowly by the accumulation of shells left by dead mollusks as fast as they perish, and not by sudden catastrophes, which would have heaped them up alive in greater or less numbers. This is proved by the fact that frequently on the inside of shells we find parasitic animals that attach themselves to bodies of all kinds, and which could not attach themselves here in the interior of the shell if the mollusk had not been previously destroyed. Often the very shell of the parasite is covered by others, showing the first had long existed in the sea. The shells of bivalves are frequently found separated, showing the animal must have died before they were buried. And there are shells which are pierced by lithophagi, as well as the flints and fragments of limestone, which accompany them, leading to the same conclusion. There are, of course, some exceptions, but these are commonly due to local circumstances. Generally, these shelly deposits are on the spot where the animals lived. In fact, they contain a great number of uninjured shells, the most delicate appendages of which are in a state of perfect preservation, a circumstance not reconcilable with the idea of transportation by currents, which would have broken the whole and rounded the fragments. Even in decomposition, the finest parts have left their impressions on the substances enveloping them. By means of the debris alluded to, we may always recognise marine deposits. Carbonaceous deposits It is undeniable that the carbonaceous deposits found in different strata of the earth were produced there by the accumulation of the remains of plants. This is proved by the numerous and clearly characterised remains of stems and leaves met with, either in the combustible mass or in the earthy matter containing it. On this point, all are of one opinion but all do not agree as to the manner of the accumulation of these remains some geologists suppose that all carbonaceous deposits result from the sinking of great rafts of diverse plants transported by great rivers by maritime currents and sunk in different places others think on the contrary that most of these deposits were formed in place in the same manner as peat bogs in depressions of the surface to which rivulets daily brought debris from the surrounding vegetation opposed to the idea of floating rafts is the enormous thickness they must have attained to have produced beds of coal such as are known between two layers of arenaceous matter. In fact, taking into consideration the specific weight of wood, the amount of carbon it contains relatively to that of carbonaceous deposits, we find that the latter can only be 2200s, or even 700s, according to the kind of plants, of the primitive volume of the matter's which gave origin to them. Besides, estimating the numerous voids left by the irregular interlacing of these debris in a raft, we know that coal, for example, which is formed of the lightest plants, as the aquisitaceae, ferns, etc., cannot be in the bed more than thirty-five thousands of the thickness of the raft that formed it that is, a coal bed of from one to thirty yards thick, would require the rafts to have been twenty-eight or fifty-seven to eight hundred and fifty-seven yards in thickness, which evidently exceeds the limits of probability, and in most seas would be impossible. The idea of the formation being analogous to that of peat bogs, does not present this difficulty, and only requires time for the accumulation of the necessary organic materials. In the present state of things, this time would be very considerable, for according to the calculation of Monsieur de Beaumont, on the quantity of carbon annually produced by our forests, not much more than six-tenths of an inch in thickness of coal would be formed in carbonaceous deposits in the period of a century. But everything leads to the belief that at a mean temperature of 71 degrees Fahrenheit, when the atmosphere was filled with vapour, and vegetation in the genera of plants that then grew in our country, was infinitely more vigorous than at present, we are also led to believe that at the epoch of these formations, when the earth had not yet cooled to its present temperature, a great deal of carbonic acid issued from its interior, and the appropriation of the carbon by plants was then more rapid. It is not only for the formation of coal that a long period of time is required. All sedimentary, and calcareous deposits formed only of shells which acquire much greater thickness than carbonaceous deposits have certainly required many centuries to reach this point. The hypothesis which assimilates deposits of coal to peat bogs is fortified by the different characters they present. Such are not only the trees found erect with their roots and the remarkable preservation of the leaves in schists, but the deposition in isolated basins of greater or lesser extent seems to indicate swamps and marshy places formed in depressions of the surface of the soil. These deposits are often surrounded on all sides by rocks of an anterior formation, which form the pyrieties of the cavity where they took place. Frequently we also find that a certain number of small basins, independent of each other, forming part of a more extensive basin of a species of lake filled with contemporaneous, arenaceous matters, on the surface of which there would be formed as many masses of combustible there are some too that extend through the length of certain ancient valleys and are contained in them all these circumstances are observable in the deposits of the centre and south of france but in the north of france in belgium in england and in scotland it is different there the beds of combustible seem to extend over great spaces and the assemblage of facts, as well as the immediate superposition of marine limestone found in all these countries, leads us to suppose that these deposits, now dislocated and separated by seas, have once formed part of the same whole. It was not in swamps or enclosed lakes they were formed, but in a vast sea, the receptacle of all the debris of the vegetation of its coasts and islands, that they must have taken place, and in which undulatory motion stratified these materials as well as all other sedimentary deposits. Certain deposits of lignite were evidently formed in the same manner as coal, but there are others which constitute irregular masses of wood-thrown pell-mell, more or less bituminous, and preserving their tissue found accidentally buried in the midst of sedimentary deposits, and which probably had a similar origin to those transported by great rivers, which are deposited in lakes or conveyed to the middle of seas. Remains of shells are rare in deposits of coal, properly so called. There is no trace of them in any of the deposits of the centre of France, and it is only in the Great Formation, comprising the north of France, Belgium and England, that some examples are met. Marine shells are found in the environs of Liege and of Namur in Derbyshire, etc. Freshwater shells, similar to Unio and Anodonta, are found in the same place. In most deposits of lignite, in which the structure of the wood has generally disappeared, we find, on the contrary, a great number of fluviatile tile shells, which proves that the formation of these deposits Took place in freshwater lakes. End of Lesson Eight, Part One.